Welcome to Common Ground YYC on Livewire Calgary. Reviendra à la ville de Calgary. Today, Calgary is a different place than it was yesterday. All right, episode 12 of Common Ground YYC. I'm joined by Jen Gerson. Welcome, Jen. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you coming on. So you're now a freelance journalist. Yes, I've been a freelance journalist for a year now. Wow. So how's that going? It's fabulous. I love it. Yeah, I, so, I highly recommend uh, anybody who's in a stable journalism job to rage quit and go out on their own. It's a great, great career path. Can't possibly fail. Yeah, I want to touch a little bit on that because I was, <laughs> you know, part of the reason why I got in touch with you for this interview, my interest was piqued by, I was actually listening to uh, a podcast with Jack Dorsey of Twitter. Oh, okay. And he had talked a little bit about, you know, how Twitter, one of its most important constituencies is, is journalists. Mm-hmm. And, and one thing he suggested was, one of the benefits it has caused for journalists is that it's allowed to allow journalists to kind of decouple themselves a little bit from publications specifically and, you know, give them an identity and give them a following beyond just what their publication is. I and, think that is profoundly optimistic and largely wrong. <laughs> just so that we're clear. Um, firstly, uh, to some extent, yes, Twitter is a, is, can be used as an effective branding tool and it yeah. can be used as an effective social networking tool in order to, to connect you and draw attention to you as an individual brand and build your individual brand and help you connect with editors who otherwise might not have heard heard of you. Yeah. That is that is a, a valuable tool set. However, beyond that, the value of a Twitter following is almost nil. I worked a little for a little bit of time as a as a uh, editor at the post and I saw what numbers Twitter's were drawing was drawing into stories and the answer is you know, in the most popular stories on Twitter, maybe 5% of the traffic was actually coming from Twitter click-throughs. I think I've seen articles that show us that the click-through rate on tweets is something like 1.6%. Uh, you know, if you think that your 20, 30, 40,000, 500,000 Twitter following is actually generating traffic for your stories or yeah. as a replacement for an actual organic audience that is interested in your writing, you are kind of deluding yourself. It's 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 the illusion of a profile that doesn't actually exist. Do you think people though are following or reading your stories because of you or is it because of they happen to follow the publication that you are writing? It's a bit of both. Yeah, it's it's both? both. It's both. And I think it, I don't think that's new by the way. I think yeah. that that um you know, some individuals get inextricably linked with a brand and a kind of a brand voice yeah. and and that's part of the package appeal. For, for some readers. And certainly some people are following me as a writer. You know, they seek out what I produce in CBC or McLean's or, or, or um, places like that. Certainly some people are finding me through Twitter, uh, a few, but it's not a lot. All right. Well, it's good to know Jack is full of shit. So. Yeah, he's a little <laughs> bit full of shit on that one. Is. That's interesting. No, I, I, was, I was curious to hear from a journalist who's followed the path you have because it feels like you know, what was, you know, what was some of the driving motivation to kind of go on your own? Is it just the versatility and flexibility you have to write what you want, for who you want, when you want? So where do you want to start this conversation? Because, I mean, I've been in journalism for <laughs> yeah. 12, 13 years now. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, I had a pretty conventional path into journalism. Like, I was not some, you know, rando blogger who made it big. Like, 
I went to journalism school, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Ryerson, I, right? I went yeah. to Ryerson, yeah. you know, I, I, I did all of the uh, uh, internships at places like the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail. I got contracts at the Star when I was starting out. Like, yeah. you know, if you were to track my path, I mean, I actually feel for a lot of people who are coming up more recently because I mean, the path that I got into journalism is gone now. It's just obliterated. You, you couldn't follow my career path if you wanted to. It just those options aren't even available anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I came up through mainstream journalism yeah. and um, that was how I built a name for myself and built a profile for myself. You know, going back to Twitter, Twitter was sort of complementary to some of that. But, you know, if I hadn't had those opportunities earlier on in my career, could I have built a journalism based on, you know, Twitter fighting? Absolutely not. I couldn't have. Um, but anyway, so what's what prompted me to go from, you know, 12 years of full time employment <laughs> in journalism to just being like, ah, fuck it. I'm going to I'm going to quit and go do my own thing. Um, you know, as I said, I, I'd been doing this for more than a decade. I, I built the relationships that I needed to build to succeed as a, as a freelancer that didn't happen over one or two years yeah you know that had happened over a decade of right. work yeah. solid regular boring tedious for a big company yeah. pump it out yeah. work over for multiple yeah. big companies yeah um so you know i had a um i was known to be someone who could produce and who could you know work um within the deadlines and strictures of, of a mainstream media company um i built a reputation for myself as someone who could write pretty well so I had the contacts within the industry. I knew who to pitch. You know, if I want to go write a column for the Globe or for the McLean's or whatever, I know who to talk to. I know who to pitch. Yeah. Um, I have those contacts. So career-wise, I'd set myself up for that. And um, I guess I got to a point with the Post specifically where, you know, I had a really, really good time at the Post. I had a really great – I was at the Post for about six years. And to be honest, I, I loved it there. It was a really good match for me. Yeah. But you get to a point with a company where you kind of have to make a decision. Am I going to, you know, be a career, be a lifer at this company? And like, what's my future here? And what does that look like? Um, or am I going to try and do something a little bit different, a little bit more daring? And, but circumstances kind of aligned in a couple of ways where, you know, I wanted to do other types of work, more podcasting, for example. And I wanted to maintain a certain degree of sort of independence and creative independence, I guess. Um, to do certain types of work and not other types of work. And it just wasn't meshing with what the post wanted from me anymore. And it yeah. just didn't seem like it was the right place for me to be going forward. That's good. Well, you certainly, I think, found your voice and you, you're contributing to a lot of different publications, one of which I wanted to dive a little bit into uh, that kind of piqued my interest as well about doing this podcast was uh, a piece you did in the Walrus called "The Great Myth of Alberta Conservatism." So, what first? What was the genesis of, of of this? Was it just what you hear people say? I mean, I remember being in Alberta and growing up in Alberta, going to Ontario for school, and you know, you're in a political science school and stuff like that, and your reputation kind of precedes you there in a context like Ontario, where you know you you start you know you introduce yourself as being from Calgary, Alberta, and people look at you like you have a third eye or something yeah, like, oh, yeah. oh, I, I kind oh, of a similar, oh, the Bible belt. Yeah. Right? And I kind of had like, a very similar like, experience <laughs> coming into like Ryerson, right? Where yeah. I was, I was from the West coast at that point. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I was born in Calgary, but I grew up mostly in the West coast and the, the cultural differences were subtle, but they were noticeable if you were yeah. coming into it from, from the outside, I thought. Um, so I had a kind of similar experience to that. Uh, I started working at the Calgary Herald in 2010 and was there for about two years. And then I basically got promoted within Post Media to work at the uh, National Post as the Alberta correspondent in 2012. And I think I started that job 
literally the day before the writ dropped on the 2012 election. Yeah. And I hadn't really done a lot of politics before 2012. Like, it, mm-hmm. I was more of a general assignment kind of person. I yeah. bored easily. I didn't like beats, really. Um, but that election, and especially in Alberta, which were, which wasn't, I mean, people forget this, but prior to 2012, Alberta was not considered the hotbed of like interesting political intrigue. Like yeah. this was not the province you were coming to if you were really fascinated yeah, by yeah. politics. And then of the course- The end of a 40 year dynasty. Yeah, the end of a 40 year dynasty. I mean, which everybody just assumed would continue on for another 40 years, right? Like it wasn't that interesting. And yeah. then 2012 happened and things got really interesting really fast. I mean, yeah. that was that was the Redford, um, sorry, that was the, the, the big fight where everybody thought that Wild Rose might actually have yeah. a shot. Um, I thought were, the night before it was going to Yeah, happen. a lot of, I, yeah. I did too. I actually thought the night before that election that Wild Rose was going to take it. Yeah. Um, I was totally wrong, but that's fine. <laughs> um, you know, this was uh, Redford coming to power and the way she came to power was fascinating. Yeah. Um, what she represented for the province is this sort of, I guess, more progressive woman, female coming from a, a, a law background, highly educated. I mean, I mean, the way the rest of Canada responded to Redford was fascinating because it told you a lot about their inherent biases about Alberta. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, Redford's dramatic flame out was just addictive. It was a soap opera. Right. And so I just got sucked into politics um, from that point on. And it's just kind of wound up becoming a bit of my beat. Over the course from 2010, 2012 on, yeah. um, there was just something that really bothered me about the way that Albertans thought about themselves and the way that, the, that we have sort of stereotyped ourselves as being conservative. Because I think that when you start to peel back the layers of that, it gets much more complicated. It's very complicated. And much yeah. more interesting. Yeah. And it doesn't really line up with this idea that Albertans are stereotypically ideologically conservative. Yeah. I think they're more tribally conservative. Right. Like they connect, In the context of confederation. In the context yeah. of confederation, yeah. I think most Albertans identify with conservative, you know, big C conservative because there's a sense that the conservatives kind of represent us. Yeah. They're in the home this. team. They're the home team. Exactly. In yeah. and, and like the liberals are, or they represent Ontario and Quebec Yeah, and maybe a little bit of Atlantic Canada. BC's off doing its own thing. They can do whatever <laughs> they want. So it's like, there's, it's, it's really more about a tribal affiliation than yeah. it is about an ideological affiliation. Because when you actually start questioning Albertans on specific issues, you find they're all over the map on yeah. stuff, right? Like there is absolutely a core of social conservatives in Alberta who, yeah. are, who have a lot of power because they're very, they're, you know, they donate a lot of time and money to various parties um, and they have their voices heard, especially in conservative circles. That's there, but they're the minority. Yeah. The majority of Albertans are not socially conservative. No. You know, they're not, you know, out there protesting against abortion and gay marriage. They're not sucked into the, the these, these sort of divisive culture war issues. That's not where most of us live. Um, especially in the cities, especially in the cities. Yeah, and that's what I want to touch on too. Is this you, you talked a little bit on the article? Is we're not we're we're also just not a political monolith. Like depending on which right. context you're looking at within the province, yeah. you know, Calgary is different from Edmonton. Edmonton's different from totally. rural, you know, etc. There's a lot of differences, you know, within uh, within our cities. And but but here's the thing that drives me nuts about the Alberta stereotype and the way it gets portrayed in the rest of Canada is that that's true everywhere. Absolutely. Like, you yeah. know, like like you know, I, I get very frustrated when I see you know stories in 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 newspapers where you know they go into some rural bar and start they find you know a racist in the rural bar to talk you know crap about you know gay people or people of color and then they represent that as the Albertan stereotype. Yeah. Which you know, don't get me wrong, I'm not defending. 
slapped by any stretch. That's awful. But like you could go to that rural bar in Ontario and find those people. You yeah. go to a rural bar in Quebec and find those people. You yeah. go to a rural bar anywhere in the country and find those terrible people if that's what you're looking for. Yeah. But when you pick those people out to represent the province, you're just confirming this and, yeah, and confirmation doubling bias. down. It's a confirmation yeah. bias yeah. issue. Right? Not to say that we don't have problems with racism and, and transphobia and bigotry here in Alberta. Of course we do. Yeah. I am not convinced that those problems are of a scale that is larger or lesser than in any other province in this country. Yeah. So one thing you talk about, too, is, you know, maybe what's you, you characterized Alberta's identity probably less so accurately as conservative and more as populist in a way. Yeah. And you, you, you traced a little bit of that to the roots of. Yeah, and some of the ideological complexities too. You know, you quoted a few people who are like, "Oh, it's really about the you know the frontier of you know the Americans from the Midwest that moved here to start and the railway." Is, and, and that's one of the old conservative myths. Yeah, right. The reason why we vote conservative is because all of these Americans came up to settle settle Southern Alberta, and, and I mean, Jason Kenney spelled out this myth quite eloquently. Yeah, I'm not saying there's nothing to that. Yeah, there, there's there's probably an element to our politics that is. A little bit more American than another pro- than in other provinces, and there's probably an immigration element to that. Yeah. The other part of that myth is that um, there's a sense that, or or sense especially among academics, that um, Alberta's conservatism is self fulfilling. So if you are cons- a conservative entrepreneurial Ontarian who's just sick of the liberal government, yeah. you pick up sticks and you move down to Alberta, and then you know you or or even if you're a liberal minded um, Atlantic Can- Canadian. You come to Alberta and you kind of become more conservative with time. Yeah. Um, as I said, is there something to that? Yeah, there's probably something to that. But the unifying theory of Alberta, the thing that holds, you know, the history of the province together from 1905 to 2018 or 2019, isn't ideological conservatism. It's Western alienation. Yeah. It's anti-Ottawa, anti-Central Canada sentiment that leads to really interesting manifestations of both left and right-wing populism yeah yeah and you talked about you know the the role you know the home team aspect of you know this sort of regional aspect of conservatives more you know its center of gravity being more west and and the liberal government feeling more its center of gravity more towards uh, central canada you know, and with the the reform movement right i mean which was essentially a regional reform movement that moved east right yeah and then you know if you look at municipal government you've never you haven't had in a post-war era self-described conservative politician win as mayor of calgary at the provincial level you know we have this not even ralph klein was conservative when he won as mayor of calgary card-carrying liberal and 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 when you think about dynastic politics you know Mm -hmm. that requires you and and uh peter lahid often talked about this is just the, the governing party just took up so much of the ideological spectrum. They totally. Just, they squeezed everyone out to the margins, and they were just like the pragmatic well, middle of everything. And that's where Alberta gets unique from other prairie provinces. Yeah. Right? It's the dy- the, the dynasticness. <laughs> that's a terrible word. It's, um, it's, it's the fact it's that... It's a word now. <laughs> it's the fact that Alberta has this long history of electing governments for like 30 or 40 years yeah. and never switching, switching teams, essentially. That, I think, is actually a direct consequence of oil. Yeah. I think that is directly connected to our oil-based resources. For sure. Because if you are in a situation where you can provide high levels of very expensive public services for a very low amount, sorry, for, if you can provide high levels of very expensive public services and at the same time keep taxes low yeah. and at the same time keep your unions happy, 
you have a recipe for long-term political success. And the only reason why Alberta's been able to do that uh, has because is is because um, you know a quarter to a third of our revenues come from oil resources, yeah. oil, oil, natural gas, bitumen resources. So essentially, we don't pay our own way. We don't pay our own freight in this province, and because of that, there's very little incentive to kick people out because everything keeps on going pretty good. Do you think there's a speaking of like our industry, uh, our, our leading industry being kind of a key factor in? political culture is it do you think it's partly just that because oil and gas like i work in the building and development sector it has a pretty conservative political culture you know vis-a-vis you know how it thinks about regulation and and these sorts of things it, it, it's very much like a, a free enterprise type conservative culture in that is there Kinda. anything to that because th- oil and gas is so predominant and the pr- province is so important politically in terms of regulating it do you think that dynamic between that's, the two shaped political that's culture? That's almost certainly part of it. And don't get me wrong, there is a, a somewhat unhealthy symbiotic relationship between the oil and gas sector and the political culture in this province and has been for years. Whether or not that borders on corruption, I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting conversation. It's not Quebec, let's put it that way. Well, it's not Quebec, but, but <laughs> we'll you know, get into that it, it's not Quebec, but let me tell you, there's the it, it got real cozy with the PCs at the end. Yeah. Right? Um, to a degree that I think started to really bother people, particularly when the prospects of their taxes started to go up. I mean, I could draw parallels here between some of the stuff I saw in the Middle East when I was working in the Middle East, right? Yeah. Um, there In the Middle East, there are a lot of... Um, I mean, I really don't, please, please don't overdraw this comparison. I, I'm perfectly aware that we are in a, a, a healthy, happy, democratic nation versus yeah. what happens in the Why Middle East. Why are you East. comparing society? Uh, I know, I know. But, you know, in the Middle East, uh, you know, the sheikhs and the kings in the Middle East buy their political legitimacy using oil money. Yeah. That's what they do. They create far, much, much more of a welfare state than anything we have in Alberta. But they essentially create fake jobs for their employees, pay them really he- heavily um, using oil revenues. And this essentially creates the political legitimacy to allow these groups to continue to govern without much complaint from their from their local populace. That is a much, much more extreme example than what we have in Alberta, yeah. and I'm not pretending otherwise here. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's a certain degree of coziness. But even that, I think you've got to be careful, because if you actually talk to a lot of people in oil gas, and I've got family members in, 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 those, that, in that sector as well, it's a really cosmopolitan group, yeah. right? Like the people who are working, especially in the cities and in the white collar jobs, they're pretty, they're very sophisticated. They're young, they're well-educated. They're yeah. people who are much more likely to vote liberal or even NDP just by virtue of their background than you would expect. A lot yeah. of these people are, 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 you know, they've worked all over the world. They've got very high end tastes, you know, like, they don't fit a stereotype of what you would expect a voter to be. So yes, there's a certain degree of coziness between the oil and gas sector. I'm sh- that absolutely has an effect on the political culture. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't rule out the possibility that a lot of those oil and gas workers voted NDP in the last election. Just to kick bums out sort of thing? Or is, well, it, or is it ideologically di- driven, perhaps? No, no, I don't think it's necessarily ideologically driven. I think I don't... I don't well, here's the thing when we're going to talk about politics. Uh, ideology almost never drives politics. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. People don't vote conservative because they believe in the ideology of conservatism. People yeah. aren't voting NDP because they're socialists. Yeah. People don't, I mean, unless you're extremely partisan, that's not how, that's not the thought process that people generally go through. Yeah. They may think of themselves as being conservative, but very few people stop and think about what that actually means. Yeah. People have a sort of an emotional tribal identity to a particular partisan party. Um, or they're they're motivated by other kind of external factors. I had a, the best quote I had in 2015 was when I was working for the Post, and um, 
I went to a Brian Jean. It was a Brian Jean event. And it was in the middle of, uh, I can't remember where it was, but it was in a very, very rural town hall kind of environment. The kind of place I love. I love these places. Like, yeah. people talk to you. Like, everybody knows everybody, right? I love going to these places. It was surrounded by horses. It was beautiful. Just gorgeous, <laughs> right? The sort of place you love being on the, on the campaign trail. And they had, you know, coffee and donuts set up on the side. Great, great. And so I went up talking to some of these old guys, right, who I'm sure had been farming in the area for 20, 30 years. And they were there at a Wild Rose event, just yeah. to be clear. And... Um, I started talking about who they were going to vote for. And, you know, they were kind of like, well, we don't know. I don't think Wild Rose has a shot. I think we're going to vote NDP. And I'm like, you are old white dudes in rural Alberta. Yeah. Why are you voting NDP? And he like, like, don't like they're socialists. Why are you voting for socialists? And the best quote, one of them gave me the best quotes. He's like, well, it doesn't matter if they're socialist, if the government was run right. Yeah. And to me, that summed it up right there. They're looking for competence. You're looking for competence. Yeah. You're looking for people who, who can be trusted, who aren't corrupt, and who are going to run the government right. That's all they were looking for. It, the rest of it was just labels. So to sum it up, Alberta, it's complicated. It's so complicated. <laughs> this is why I love it. Like I, I, it is, I, yeah. I, Once I got into the po politics, once I fell down the politics hole, I couldn't drag myself out of it because it's just so neat here. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think it's it's interesting to try and wrap your head around it. And I want to segue that to actually talk about the upcoming election because there's sure. some interesting dynamics going on. And, you know, I think it was like about 18 months or two years ago that I tweeted that you know, it's it's just getting like it's so predictable how the next two years are going to go. It's going to be the UCP going. We're not the NDP. We're not the socialists. It's going to be the NDP going. Look how crazy socially conservative those people are. Mm -hmm. You cannot trust them. They're scary. Like a fire. Well, it like for, a fire. It, it worked for Redford and, and the Mild Rose, though, now, didn't it? It did. But given where we are as a yeah. province, yeah. like, is this not the time not like to not think about those things and to lay out the grand bargain the grand vision I, I you know I even think back to what jim prentice had promised he wasn't playing that look in the game. mirror yeah i mean i mean there was there was that there was that whole dynamic of you know there's an interesting story where i was i you know i was staffing the mayor an event you know this is right when he was ready to jump in to uh the leadership race like right at that moment and we were sitting in a vestibule prentice calls mayor nancy just to, to chat about advice or whatever the mayor's asking, like, are you ready to do the things you need to do in that party to clean house and really, you know, yeah. really change things? Like, yeah. this is a house of cards right now. Yeah. Like, the, the baggage of 40 years is really weighing this down. Are you prepared to do what's necessary? And and Prentice kind of, he sort of just, he dismissed it a little bit. He sort of said, ah, it's not as bad as you think. And <laughs> I was sitting there <laughs> thinking, like, it's, it's going to end. This is going to end it. very this badly. And, yeah. and it did. Like, you kind of saw that. That dynamic but you know once he was actually in power at least he was laying out a path towards some sort of change in our fiscal framework to, to to get us out of this sort of quagmire of pretending like the alberta advantage quote-unquote alberta advantage exists which was just royalties covering for low yeah, taxes low taxes exactly like it's exactly what it was but, but at least way, he but, tried to do something i don't hear he any of that stuff. no exactly and this is my big criticism with the ndp and it's my big criticism with the with the pcs the pcs or sorry not the pcs the ucp the ucp has the winning argument by basically continuing to stoke anger against ottawa on pipelines yeah that is a winning argument they can win the election on that argument that doesn't actually fix alberta's fiscal situation no just so that we're clear like yeah yes absolutely there's no dispute in this room that you know Ottawa's effed up this file royally 
need to get the pipelines in the ground. Yeah. The money we're pissing away because we don't have pipelines in the ground is egregious and disgusting. Yeah. And a lot of it has to do with Western alienation and regional politics in ways that are unfair and gross. No dispute on that front. But even if you get But even pipeline. if you get all the pipelines you want in the ground yeah. tomorrow, Alberta still has a major fiscal problem. And that fiscal problem is rooted in the fact that we're still you know, not paying our freight. We, we, we don't pay our own way in taxes here. Yeah. Oil and gas royalties eat a huge chunk of our of our revenue. Yeah. Sorry, they contribute to a huge chunk of our revenue. And as long as that remains the case, it means that um, the entire province is extremely vulnerable to volatile oil and gas prices that we actually can't control, that yeah. are just so beyond our control that it's not even funny. So, you know, there is a gradual, responsible, I mean, I've spoken to Trevor Toome, I'm sure you've spoken to him before. There's a gradual, responsible path out of this hole we've dug for yeah. ourselves, yeah. right? It doesn't involve radically cutting a, th- you know, you can't, you can't cut your way out of this problem. It's a quarter of the goddamn budget. Yeah. Like, like get a grip. You, yeah, you're not, I mean, you're not going to cut, you know, yeah. half of healthcare spending, and which you, is the equivalent yeah. of what you would need to cut. And this is where, this you know, is where like, certain ideological dogmatism starts to creep in because you have one party on the one hand that refuses yeah, no, to talk about yeah, but the, spending but and the what other... I find so frustrating because if you actually talk to anybody privately, they all know this. They all understand what the problem is and they all understand what the solution is. Revenue and spending. It's a mixture of revenue and spending and it's going to be a gradual improvement over time. It has to be a mixture of... Like, yes, I'm sorry. We are going to have to address the spending side of the equation. Absolutely. We can't continue um, spending more than any other province yeah. uh, on, on, on teachers' wages and hospital, and doctors' wages and nurses yeah, and gonna, everything. Yeah. Like At a certain point, you are going to have to freeze those spending increases. And I will give the NDP credit on this one. They've actually put in some pretty tough contracts with their, with their unions. Yeah. Like, they've done better than the PC in terms of controlling that spending increase than, than the PCs had done previously. Yeah. But that's a gradual process. Like, you can't also just go back to teachers and doctors and, and nurses and say, we're going to cut your salaries by 10% next month. Yeah. Like, what is it actually going to be is it's going to be 10 years of 0% increases. But isn't even more contemptible that they're not having the political courage to say, exactly. to and say like, and, like and, look, we're going to have to and, and the NDP's not doing it either. The UCP's not doing it no. either. They're all getting caught up in sort of the, the for lack of a term, the, the political culture war stuff, the screw Ottawa stuff. Yeah. And nobody's, nobody is presenting a credible argument for how we actually fix the resource hole we're in. And that is what I find so frustrating. Like the UCP, like UCP is saying, well, well, we can do it without major cuts, but they're not clarifying exactly how. And actually, I don't think major cuts are necessary or even a positive way forward. No, Trevor Toome would say no, he would moderate say moder- spending you need, you restraint. Need moderate spending restraint over yeah. time will compound. Yeah. And then you also but you also need to have as part of that equation. And don't get me wrong, you you know, you need a review of spending, you need to look at where the money's going. No question, no dispute on that point. But, you know, we're not in this hole because of government waste, no. really. I mean, don't get me wrong, we can talk about AHS and sort of the problems they've had over the years and all that kind of stuff. There are, there are, there are examples of government waste. We're not in a $10 billion hole because of government waste. We're in a $10 billion government, dollar government hole because we've relied on resource royalties. Yeah. That is the problem we're facing. And you can also bring that, you also have to talk about being willing to sort of shrink that gap through some degree of measured revenue increases. The fact that it is political suicide in this province to talk about a sales tax is insane. But but is that is that self fulfilling though? It's it, totally it, self fulfilling. Every time it's everyone totally says it's political suicide to do it's so, totally self. No one's ever tried it. One hundred percent. It's completely self fulfilling. Aren't Albertans smart enough to realize probably that not. that's probably nobody's nobody <laughs> look nobody nobody is going to sign up for a sales tax. What I think honestly the the smartest way forward is like 
Notley's already brought in the carbon tax. Yeah. Treat that as a sales tax. Yeah. Put the money in general revenue. Right. Like that's, <laughs> you just, it's a sales tax. Yeah. And treat it as such. Call it a carbon tax, whatever. Get the social license, whatever, whatever the hell that means. Get what you, squeeze what you can out of it. But don't put the money into a separate sustainability fund. We can't afford that right now. Just put the money into general revenue, which is essentially what they're doing. It right? is essentially that. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> and I told, and I told Kenny that too. I've had the same debate with Kenny over coffee. I'm just like, same. dude, dude, just. Just keep the carbon tax treated as a treated as a yeah. sales tax, effectively, and then you then you avoid the political suicide of trying to bring in a sales tax in on it. But at the same time, you're actually addressing the 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 revenue gap from both ends, and you're doing it in a way that's responsible. And you're not like, as I said, no party is going to fix this problem by cutting a third to a half to a quarter of the budget. No. That's insane. And yeah. no, and no government, no no Albertan would accept that. No Albertan's going to be like, sure, close down a quarter of our hospitals. Yeah, on, on one hand, I understand why Kenny's being tight-lipped about anything he wants to do because and just from a political strategy point of view, he everything he says is just downside risk, probably. Yep. And the more he's just quiet, yep. the more he can kind of just ride yep. the I'm not the NDP, you're in bed with Trudeau. You're in bed with Trudeau. You, yeah, you, like, you've, made a, you've made a dodgy alliance with Trudeau that didn't pan out, and now we don't have pipelines. On the other hand, the citizen in me is going like, what the hell is the plan? Like, what's the plan? plan? Like, we're in, you know, dire straits here in terms of our fiscal situation. Yep. We need a path forward and we need someone to articulate that. Yep. And so we'll count on people like you to hold their feet to the fire. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but I mean, this is the problem is that when you have such a polarized electorate, I mean, I think that if you were to sit Notley and Kenny down in a room and be like, okay, this is off the record. They would probably come to agreement on like 99% yeah. of the problems yeah. and they would probably very quickly, I mean, they're both smart people. They would both come to an agreement in terms of what actually needs to be done in a perfect scenario where politics wasn't going to be a factor. Yeah. And they would actually agree. Like yeah. most NDP people I talk to understand what the problem the disagreements is. disagreements would be on the margins. It would be, the, yeah. it's a, the disagreement on this basic core stuff is, is utterly marginal. Yeah. But then you put them out in public and they have different constituencies to play to. Yeah politics right it's the uh, worst it's the worst look the problem is we just need to abolish democracy and introduce a technocracy problem solved okay yeah i want to talk about one of the news stories of the week here which was you know you've you've had these new campaign rules come into place Stephen mandel is now ineligible to run <laughs> in his riding i mean isn't this the weirdest thing you've ever seen like the alberta party is not a thing i'm sorry it, it's in theory no. it exists but... in theory that's always been it, it exists on twitter so do you think that has no impact on None. on the outcome it's, just, it's two players yeah going at it. No. but i want to talk a little bit about what it's theoretically supposed to be representing which is a political good question middle. i keep on trying to like understand what the hell they represent from their platforms and it doesn't it, it yeah it's a whole lot of nothing but like in the u.s like moderation or the political middle is like in, maybe this is just a u.s context thing but it's almost like this is like a dirty word like if you yeah, look at yeah. who's lining themselves up yeah like, absolutely. oh they're a, mo- they're a moderate that's yeah god bad. forbid that's that's, that's basically a nazi now are you but kidding it, me i've always had this theory that you know the best actual governance that happens is if you have a maybe a more left-leaning political culture with a right-leaning leader and vice versa like so if you look at who is the most po- like who's the most popular governor in the United States right now? 
It's a Republican governor of Massachusetts. Hmm. You know, the least. So I would the, have gone with Schwarzenegger, but I mean, that's cool. Yeah, Take your word for it. But that, that's the thing. He was a yeah. he was a Republican in, in California, and the, the least popular are a Republican in the most conservative state and a Democrat in one one of the most yeah. But democratic what, the, what, what what does that actually tell you? And it goes back to what I was actually saying. Ideology doesn't actually matter. Well, I'm that's just not. That's not actually why people vote. But I'm wondering if it's like this sort of this idea of ideas like people having to moderate themselves in that context yeah, and governing as opposed to just well, going we, off we the deep a, end. We, right? we have a beautiful example of that with the NDP in Alberta. I mean, the NDP back when it was like a 5% party was a pretty radical party yeah. that was sort of shameless about being against pipelines and all that kind of stuff. And because if you're a party that doesn't have a hope in hell of gaining power, you can, you have the luxury of being radical. You have the yeah. luxury of being an activist party. They've had to moderate. When you actually get into power and yeah. all of a sudden you're dealing with, you know, people who are bureaucrats and, and, and experts telling you, okay, but this is what would actually happen and this is what you're going to have yeah. to cut. All of a sudden, you know, your radicalism and activism doesn't work anymore. But to support my theory, John Horgan in BC is sort of like... it's well, he's sort he's of, a, that's he, a rare <laughs> case, man. That's... That's a weird, weird case. Yeah, so right. I don't know if you can draw any any real grand examples from Oregon. Because, um, I mean, he's got a keep of small number of pretty radical people happy, yeah. right? But to yep. some extent, he, that's part of the situation. So, look, this is why I never really get super concerned when, quote-unquote, radicals come to power. Because, I mean... They will moderate, man. You have to, because that's just the realities of, of, of governance. So, going into the provincial election, the NDP is clearly kind of up against the wall. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about, there's been this interesting dynamic with our provincial NDP and who we were just talking about, the BC NDP and the federal NDP. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first thing I started to think about is like just a matter of political survival. It's like, why are they not disassociating themselves from those entities? Like, well, wouldn't, to, wouldn't a politically the, smart... The NDP actually is. But like even, like, even just be like, Formally, be like we're not the NDP. Anymore. I know, I I know they were considering it in the last NDP convention in yeah. in, in Edmonton. That was being discussed. Should do you think they should have done it? Because isn't kinda, the brand tarnished? Kind of, yeah. I yeah. mean, but keep in mind, like the way that they're branding their election materials now. Doesn't Rachel, Rachel, it's Rachel, 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 Rachel. Yeah. I mean, it's orange because she's she's way more respected she's, and liked than the party. Right? Her, well, this is the really fun parallel: is that Rachel Notley is actually really well liked in this province. Yeah, her party isn't trusted. At minimum, she's, she's respected. But she's yeah. liked and respected. I mean, yeah. even people who are diehard conservatives are like, I like Rachel. She's yeah. done a good job. You know, she made a mistake with making that alliance with Trudeau, but she's 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 good. She's yeah. good. She stands up. She for stands us. up for it. She's good. Yeah. Whereas Kenny's got the opposite problem. Yeah. People really like the UCP. They like the idea of an Alberta conservative party. They like the idea of their yeah. self conception as as conservatives. But they're really wary about Kenny. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Isn't that interesting? It's very it's interesting. It's so interesting. Yeah, so it'll be UCP versus the Rachel Notley yeah, party. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be the UCP versus Ver- Rachel Notley. Versus the Alberta party without a leader. Right, right, right. right. Well, as I said, I, I never thought they were a thing before, and now I think they're less of a thing now. So they're just funny. All right. So I want to I want to finish off talking about federal politics. You know, it's also an election year federally, Wee. theoretically. Um, Best week ever in federal and, politics. And, and just speaking of, you know, kind of, this home team thing and, and, you know, the fact that we, we vote in large blocks conservatively, but we, we have, the liberal party has had its footholds, you know, demographically there's mm-hmm. parts of Calgary and Edmonton, totally. you know, whether it be sort of the ethno burbs or the inner city kind of more left-leaning areas or progressive areas, they've, they saw some breakthroughs mm-hmm. there. I've always had this thought 
But all those, what? all those had more to do with individual personalities and individual organization. That's true. Like Kent Hare yeah. is was well yeah, known. He's a he's a force. He's yeah. a force, yeah. and people know him and they trust him. Yeah. Um, Darshan Kang, even at the time, I mean, he could he could marshal a lot of people in his community to come out for him. Absolutely. So, but I guess my 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 question is like, and my concern has always been like, no matter who you support. Isn't it always better to be a little bit of a swing state? Like, isn't there some peril? Absolutely. There's peril in just okay. being monolithic. Oh, man. we got to get Let's into talk. the whole conversation yeah. here. All right. Here we go. So we got to talk about <laughs> voting blocks if we're yeah. going to have that conversation. Okay. Because whether or not you are an ethnic or a regional minority, oftentimes what you will see is that uh, groups of people who feel as if they are imperiled minorities, whether that is imperiled minorities from an ethnic or a regional perspective, doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, they will very often form voting blocks. Yeah. And voting blocks are a very rational strategy if you are a minority in group in this situ in this kind of a situation. Yeah. I mean, one of the classic examples and one of the most powerful voting blocks uh, um, in existence right now is, is of course, African-Americans in, uh, in America. Yeah. I think the vote, the voting block for Democrats among African-Americans is something like 98%. It's, it's almost universal, yeah. right? And we see, for example, in Canada, uh, ethnic minority groups, Sikhs are a really good example. Um, you know, in, in, in Ontario, for example, uh, uh, Tamils often came out in support for Patrick Brown and helped him, him win the leadership. Yeah. It's a very rational, very, and also I'll be very clear, I think it's a very legitimate strategy. Yeah. It's a very rational strategy because it's a way for minority groups who can't bring out uh, huge numbers of people in the overall population to gain an extraordinary amount of power within yeah. a party or within a leader group, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So if you're um, uh, in Alberta situation and you feel like an aggrieved minority within Confederation, which I think aptly sums up Alberta, go ahead, getting behind a specific party because you can't, look, we, we can't, we don't have, like we're a province of 4 million people. We can't sway um, the overall composition of parliament. Right. We have no power over that. No. But the amount of power that we have within the conservative party is it enormous, is huge, yeah. right? Because we are a reliable voting block that turns out for them and, yep. you know, prairies go blue. Yeah. So the conservative party has to give ear to us in yeah. a way that the rest of confederation just doesn't. Right. Right. So it's a rational strategy. It makes a lot of sense. However, the downside of it is that when you give up that level of uncertainty, it means that, you know, you're powerful within a party, but it also means that nobody actually has to appease you. They can be, you could be taken you for granted. You can be taken for granted, yeah. right? So it's it's this constant back and forth dynamic where it's like you have to sort of ha stake your ground and stake your power within that party group. But at the same time, you can't be so reliable that yeah. that that um, uh, they can just start ignoring you. And of course, you saw you saw some of this. For example, um, when Brian Mulroney was leader of the Conservative Party, I mean, people in the West really hated Brian Mulroney, and there was a sense that Brian Mulroney had sold out the West. Right? The Conservatives might have lost their grip yeah. on Alberta because of Brian Mulroney. That could have happened. Yeah, it didn't, but it certainly was a contributing factor to the rise of reform. Yeah, and then I guess right? the the, the opposite problem is the other party is if there's no political upside for them yeah they, there's not, nothing there's they nothing. won't they won't no. pay attention or and they'll active they'll actively be against your interests exactly and that and that's sort of what we see with the liberal party right i mean yeah. the liberal party I, I was actually very impressed with the liberal party that they bought tmx because it was within their political interest to simply let the, let the whole project die yeah they had nothing to gain yeah. politically by a P, by by buying that pipeline, absolutely nothing. I mean, their I, four I, seats in Alberta are yeah. gone. Like they're like they ain't coming back. Hair ain't coming back. 
so he ain't yet coming back. Like, them, so you have to, I guess, in a way, you have to say, you know, it's 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 good governance that they're actually spending that political capital. It, it actually, I know, I, I know, it's pure I mean, spending. Pe- people capital, get people yeah. get angry at me when I praise the liberals in any way, but that is one topic on which I will praise them. Yeah. They spent a lot of political capital. They lost a lot of support, particularly among First Nations and environmentalists, yeah. and they did it because it was good governance. But their problem is that they've, 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 they they could have they, they still sort of the sense here is they still have kind of dipped their toe in and not gone all that the way. is despite yeah. even having bought the pipeline the pipeline's not under construction the pipeline ain't there, under there construction. are moves they could have made that would have put it under construction like what aside from the like what well, I mean after that federal court ruling like what what could well, they have done aside from that but like, you can't take it aside from that right well, the, the federal court ruling is what shut it down well I'm wondering if yes it is no that's true that's true but aside from that I'm wondering if they could have levered their use their leverage against British Columbia to back down from their position even if they'd done it wouldn't have made any difference with the federal court ruling that is true I'll grant you that like that's 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 the fundamental now I yeah. think that there are things that the that the liberals could absolutely be doing stronger yeah. in Parliament yeah the amount of political capital they would need to spend, for example, like I, I won't get into them in detail because it's too it's too in the weeds. But like the amount of political capital they would need to spend is just so high that it probably isn't tenable. Whereas the current course that they're on right now is that they're redoing the consultations with the First Nations along the along the line, yeah. which essentially really buys them time until after the next election. Next election comes and goes. Presumably they get reelected, and then the, and then the consultations are quote unquote done, and then they can begin. Do you think First Nations end up owning this pipeline? I've oh, heard that. sure. Yeah, it could absolutely happen. And that wouldn't be a bad outcome for Alberta either. No, that would be a great or outcome. Or the First Nations. No, not at all. If, if you have a consortium of First Nations uh, owning and profiting off of this pipeline um, and Alberta's still getting its oil to market, everybody it makes, wins. It makes sense. Yeah. Right? So let's finish Let's finish off on another news story of the week. Not Stephen Mandel, but SNC-Lavalin scandal. What's, oh, good. What's your what's your hot takes on? What's my hot take? Yeah, I want, some, I want some extremely hot takes. This won't air for a few days, so they oh, might be for a few days. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's going to be might air. Be wildly by that point. Every by, by that point, Justin Trudeau will have resigned, right? I mean, at this rate, <laughs> I mean, it's a it goes beyond. This isn't a political partisan bun fight. Yeah, this is a genuine scandal. There are still a lot of unknowns that you have to sort of be careful with. Uh, for example, the degree to which Jody Wilson-Raybould was actually pressured. Or whether or not you know you had people in the prime minister's office to be like, look, here's here's the scenario. If SNC goes down um, as a result of this ruling, this is what we lose. That might be within the realm of appropriate consultation, but there's a line. There's a really fine line between look, we need to have a, a fulsome discussion about this, and lady, you need to push your AG to yeah. you know give them an easier deal because we can't lose SNC. Yeah. Would you think SNC was really in that much peril? Yes. Oh, yeah. If the SNC had to go to court and they lost that criminal conviction on, on corruption, what it would mean is that they could not bid on government contracts for 10 years. Yeah. And for SNC, that's billions of dollars. Billions yeah. of dollars. They're very good chance. I mean, their their own CEOs come out and said very good chance that the, the company would have folded. Yeah. And, and the, we're talking a crown jewel Quebec company, of course, a Quebec company. Well, yeah, that's what I was just saying. Right? People out here are sort of like... Of course, it's a Quebec company. Of course, it's a Quebec company, and this is yeah. this is also the regionality conversation that people haven't even really gotten into. Yeah, is that you know if SNC goes down or did go down as a result of corruption charges, that doesn't mean you know you you would be tempted to say, well, that's nine thousand jobs in, in in Montreal and Quebec. You know, wouldn't that be a shame to see those jobs go away? And the answer is yes, it would. But 
the work wouldn't go doesn't away. Doesn't go away. You're talking about government contracts. It just yeah. means that other companies get to bid for those contracts. Other companies Who have that maybe well. <laughs> that maybe don't have corruption yeah. charges hanging over them. That maybe aren't as politically connected to the to yeah. the Liberal Party. That maybe haven't funneled one hundred and seventeen thousand dollars worth yeah. of illegal donations to Liberal Party members. I mean, like we have a few of those headquartered. We here have in a couple Alberta. of those headquartered here in Alberta. Yeah. But no, the fact that that you know that. that Allegedly, if the allegations are true, the government was willing to overstep those types of boundaries of appropriate conduct and, and really cross a line into potentially criminal conduct in order to protect SNC versus every other company that could be bidding for those government contracts. Yeah. Uh, right? Yeah. Well, listen, Jen, it's been a real pleasure. What, what, what's, uh, what's next from you? Good question. I'm probably going to be writing something about SNC. Yeah. Probably a couple things about SNC over the next uh, couple of days. I've been exhausted the last few weeks. Like Having I've just a toddler been... will do that, right? Well, he's going through a sleep regression, so he's getting up again like three or four times a night. Yeah. And we're trying to retrain him how to sleep. So the last three weeks, I've been like, I can't, man. Like I'm, I'm a zombie. I'm done. I really want to write so much, and I just can't sit down and get it out of me, which is very, very frustrating. Um, and not like like usually. That's not like me. Anyway, I'm really struggling at the moment, but hopefully I snap out of it and get back to it. Yeah, I wish you all the best, and Thank until you. next time. Yes, do you have any like uh, anything I can give a toddler to make him go to like is it, is there ethanol or something? Yeah, you just drug him. Drug him, perfect. Yeah. You gotta right. hook me up when we're not recording. All right, thanks. All right, thanks. Common Ground YYC is a production of Livewire Calgary. If you value quality local journalism, please consider supporting Livewire by following it on social media by clicking and reading stories, advertising, or contributing directly via Patreon. Visit livewirecalgary.com.